Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SevyCal is a new scheduling tool that's a must-have for every podcaster. I actually use it to book guests on this podcast, and it's made the entire process a breeze. I can set a limit for how many interviews I do every week, I can open up special availability for guests, and even create personalized links for guests to add a special touch. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Will Lawrenson. Will is an expert in DTC e-commerce conversion rate optimization, and also the host of the Customers Who Click podcast. I wanted to bring him on because he has some great insights on what he calls customer value optimization that takes into, into account conversion, experience, and lifetime value. So you'll hear about how he started a sports betting company like FanDuel and DraftKings, actionable examples and tips to increase conversions, and the keys to driving up lifetime value. So to start out, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing and conversion rate optimization for a living? It depends when you talk about starting. It was, <laughs> it was probably not something I'd ever really considered until I left uni. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there was a, probably a little bit of an expectation on me that I'd go into a top tier career. I, th I think that's where my parents wanted me and my brothers to go. Oh, you mean marketing isn't a top tier career? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? That's that professional qualification sort of, sort yeah, of career. Yeah. You know, my, my brother went to do law, although didn't end up getting into law. My younger brother is a doctor. Mm. I went off to do, actually, I can't remember what the course I started with was. I, I did, a, I think a year of business management or something. And then after that first year, I switched and did accounting and finance, which yeah, was not for me, uh, especially the accounting side. So I left university, went away traveling for a bit. And uh, yeah, eventually it, it probably came around just through job hunting. You know, this was 2011 when I was searching for a job. So uh, things were still a little tough, you know, after after the, the crash in 2008. So it was still, you know, yeah. you basically, if you didn't have a, a degree, you couldn't even apply for jobs. You know, it, basically everything said you must have a, a degree. So I was applying from, for everything from you know, recruitment roles through to, to sales, marketing roles, whatever. And eventually got a, what was described as a marketing internship at a startup, but was actually a sales role, which I discovered was quite common for, for them to be positioned like that. But it was a team of about six of us. So I got quite close to the founders um, and the parent company. I just kind of pushed myself into the marketing team, really. Somewhere along that the line there, I decided marketing is what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I just kind of I pushed myself into it. I did a diploma in mobile marketing because that's I was working in the mobile space with apps. And yeah, it's just it's kind of gone from there, really. I love it. 2011 through, you know, 2015, maybe it was kind of like the golden years of, of mobile. What, what was it like from your, from your perspective? Uh, did you know sort of like what was happening at the time or, you know, what was it, what was it like just being in that space? Oh, I mean, I was pretty clueless at a start, but yeah, I mean, I picked it up quite quickly. I mean, to the point where the, you know, things were moving so quickly back then as well. You know, the, the textbook I had for the, for the diploma I did I think it was it was 2010 or 11 published date when I did the course in I think 2012 
and it was already kind of a bit out of date and a little bit behind the times and and I was sat there thinking you know I know this stuff this is stuff that I've picked up through my day job it's it's another reason why I guess I kind, I kind of regret doing I sort of regret doing it and it was it reminded me why I just hated like the academic side of things the I'd pay, you know I I I was literally reading this this textbook thinking I know all this this is all stuff that I do on a day to day basis now and and just kind of yeah damaged my opinion a bit of that of that course but yeah it, it was one of those situations where I hadn't been in education for like two years and so thought ah go on then I'll do I'll do another piece that that can't hurt and then yeah just pretty much hated every minute of it. Especially after having worked in it and then they're like, oh, there's no new information here. I've sort of lived and breathed it. And yeah, it's definitely tough. Yeah. So walk, walk me through the like the major kind of like milestones and if you can give like a, a, a brief kind of like overview of the timeline up to where you are now. Uh, sure. So yeah, I got this sales and marketing role. was in that for about, I reckon about six to 12 months trying to think how long I was at that company for. Yeah, let's say probably 12 months before I, I kind of really pushed myself into the marketing side and ended up working alongside this consultant who came in because the company didn't really have a proper marketing setup. It had someone doing email, someone doing social, someone doing PPC, and then they had a really heavy SEO team. The business kind of got built, built on some not quite, not exactly quality practices that back in the day maybe, maybe were considered right to go with. Wild West, yeah, yeah um, gray and black hat SEO. So yeah, I, I was doing this course and because I was doing the course through the startup I was in, it meant that when the parent company was hiring for a marketer, I basically just stepped up and went, that's me. Like, I'm already here. You don't have to hire someone. Just, just put me in that role. They did, which was great. And so I kind of ran marketing there for a little bit um, along well, with the consultant, but you know, I was that central guy who had a little bit of responsibility everywhere as opposed to being a specialist. And then while I was there, I worked on a new project to basically build, get this new project, new new app built for the company, basically for the sole purpose of revaluing the company and so that the owner could sell it. It was, you know, that was pretty much the, the role of this, this new app. So I basically took all the best bits from all the companies within the group, put it together in one app, which was, do you ever, do you remember Yplan? No. Yeah, Yplan? No, so it was like an event planner sort of app. I think every I think every day they would just release a bunch of tickets for something and the tickets were like five, five pounds or five dollars. And it could, be, it could be anything. So it could be some amazing events. Like Ashton Kutcher invested in it. So you know, it got it did alright for a little while. It was it was I guess kind of like that. the The idea was that you would open the app and just find something to do near you, whether it was a restaurant, some shopping, being able to book a theatre or a movie ticket, something like that. Like quite quite focused on just just a bit of spontaneity, really. So I I did the business plan for that, got that approved by the the chairman worked with a developer and designer, and then I left the company before it could get finished. And I went off to a new startup where I was head of product and marketing at a very early stage in my career. I'm still only 18 months to, yeah, two years in to my career. So I guess the role was probably a bit, I, did, I wasn't really that seniority and that experience, 
but it was I, I did that role in the company because there was no one else. Right. So I, I went into this company which had a bit of funding, ended up rebuilding their getting the well, I didn't rebuild it. I worked with an agency to get their website rebuilt and I changed their business model a bit. Originally the model was is a marketplace. So the model was we're gonna put the buyer and seller together, they're gonna communicate through the website, they're gonna to come to their arrangement, and then if they do come to the arrangement, they're gonna log back in and pay us some money. And I kind of said, that doesn't really work, does it? You're relying a lot on a lot of honesty there for people to log back in and, and pay you some money. So why don't we build in a proper booking tool? You know, they, they even kind of referred to it as the Airbnb for uh, storage. It was at the time. Huh. So they knew the Airbnb model. So I just said, yeah, let's let's rebuild the website because it needs it needs to be a new modern website anyway. Let's allow people to book the dates that they want to actually store stuff from and let's let them pay through the app. So pay through the website. So it adds that level of security for people as well. So I got that done and then and then I moved on because I was only there for a 12-month contract. I got this task or project done in about seven months and said, well, instead of you just paying me to be here, I might as well move on and you can invest that salary into marketing and stuff. Yeah, they, they were on a, on a runway. So... Right. You know, it made sense. I would have been leaving at 12 months anyway. So, so I was happy to move on. So I moved to an app called Readly, which is a subscription magazine app. A bit like Netflix or Spotify, but for magazines. Joined early on as a one of the marketing team in the UK. And the focus was just grow. Spend money, grow, grow that user base. And this was probably the role where, even though I'd done some product stuff before with the, with the mobile app at my first company and with this, this storage marketplace this was probably the role that set me on the path to where i am now focusing on conversion rates customer value customer value and that sort of stuff because this is where i saw large amounts of money being spent on marketing and acquisition but not enough focus placed on the product to make sure that that acquisition stuck you know they had a landing page tool with their own one which was fine like that, that was kind of good you know that worked to bring people in but there was nothing really done in the app to keep customers engaged. You know, it didn't really recommend content. At the mo at that time, there was no personalization engine at all. So even in the ongoing marketing automation and stuff, we couldn't say, because you've read this magazine, we recommend this one. So I started working with the product team to, to build that out. And I started to work more and more on the product and experience side so that when we're getting people signed up, we would actually keep them as subscribers. And end, ended up, you know, I was there for, yeah, close to two years. And while my main focus was always on the UK, I ended up taking over kind of global CRM operations and, and really working on that onboarding and education piece so that people would really, really understand the app, get the value from it and stick around as a subscriber. And one of, one of the projects I'm most pleased of there was this little kind of onboarding project we did where so generally every subscriber would have a free trial whether it was i don't know if we went down to seven days but it was generally 14 or 30 days we, we tested things and we tested with and without credit card and all that so we sent out a postcard handwritten postcards to half the people who signed up in the uk when they were in their trial period 
rough, I think roughly halfway through, maybe towards the end of the trial period, just saying thank you for signing up, thanks for joining the Readly family. We're always here if you've got any questions or need any help. In the trial period, this had no impact at all on engagement. Just hmm. pretty much like a surprisingly nothing effect. So what I did then was say, well, I, 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 keep, I still want to try this out because I think there's some value here. So we switched it to after they made their first payment. And that's where we saw a massive impact in it, which is really interesting because the people who received it in their trial but then subscribed and actually paid didn't see the boost that we saw if people received it after they've made their first payment, which is really interesting. But yeah, it, it worked really well. You know, the, the number of magazines they read shot up. They activated their profile on multiple devices. And I think we added about a third to their lifetime. That's uh, crazy. Were, were they literally handwritten too? Like you would just like yeah. sit down with a postcard or was there some sort of service or Yeah, no, at, you know, at, at that stage we were, we were handwriting them doing everything wow i don't know i don't think they've kept up with it since i left it's it's one of those projects that i guess because it was still in that early early phase of still being handwritten and hand done every day it wasn't an established part of the marketing resource that when right. the customer service person who was involved with it and i left it was all in place and someone just had to make sure it was still running because the two of us were doing it <coughs> sorry because the two of us were doing it and we left, I, th I think that stopped completely, which is a shame because it, it did have a big impact. And it's, it's one of these things that I've remembered for, you know, well, the rest of my career so far, that little kind of surprise and delight that we did, that little postcard that wasn't even branded or anything. Literally just, I can't remember where we got them from, whether we had them printed. At one stage, we definitely just bought them from a shop downstairs, sending them out and it, and it works so well. So, that's something I've tried to do at multiple companies since then. Yeah, that's super fun. I love that. We actually we did something similar at Bare Metrics where I would record like a five to ten minute sort of like video of me walking through someone's account and just like kind of giving like advice and recommendations and you know talking a lot of what I was seeing and people loved it. It was it was a bit more difficult to measure and like track how like effective it was. And I'm actually, I'm curious that you said that it had a better effect after the conversion because I was doing them all during the trial to try to increase trial conversions. And it seemed like it worked like, but it was, I think maybe a little bit of uh, survivorship bias because like the people who would respond to it well, maybe would have converted anyways, you know, but it's like mm -hmm. once I sent the video, you know, it was like a hundred percent of the time I would like get in contact with them or start some sort of conversation. And then I would see like that segment of, of trialing users convert much better than sort of the rest, right? But so I'd maybe think like, that's actually really interesting that you would do it after they became a customer and that that actually led to higher retention and lifetime value instead of, you know, it's like you just have to move it down funnel, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, it's something that can work for, well, hopefully work for any consumer subscription, you know, especially if it's a physical product where you can't really send it to someone who hasn't, actually place the order yet you know obviously you can collect mm. leads and stuff but generally people come in they, they place that first order so if you can just add something in then you know it should make a big impact on people and another one that i yeah. always talk about you know i've, I've mentioned this on, on linkedin as and, and in a, a couple of my podcast episodes actually i have a wooden spoon that i received through from gusto 
I don't know if you do. do you have Gusto over there? Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. cool. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I received the wooden spoon through that from them. I don't think it was actually my first box, but it must have been within the first two or three. And this, it's like my favourite wooden spoon. It's the one that if it's in the drawer, I will I will make sure I pick that one up to cook with. And that's just kind of stuck with me as, as something that I really like about that company. Even though I, I don't subscribe because the actual product just doesn't really work for my needs. But I really like the company and I, I just feel really favorably towards them. And that wooden spoon is just part of the reason for that. A wooden spoon. Well, I wonder, like, how did they package that? Like, what was like the message around sending someone a wooden spoon? Uh, well, you cook with it, don't you? It's like one of those, you know, right. on the, like the cooking spoons. So everyone, everyone uses them, and so it's a it's a free gift that they can give you that you will literally use like every day. Hmm. And it probably costs them a, a pound, maybe maybe less, 50, 50, right. 50 pence per unit, to just send that out as a as a free gift, and you'll get people talking about it, and you get people you get people liking it and, and subscribing for it. I mean, they gave a uh, a ring binder folder to put the recipes in as well. Oh, That's fine. the Gusto one I've actually got rid of because I have a HelloFresh one. And I think the HelloFresh one is slightly bigger. So I kept that, but I had two, so I only needed one of them. But Gusto gave right. me the wooden spoon, which I have got. And I, I definitely think about that a lot more. Like the ring binder feels like a bit of a generic, almost like a bit of a generic gift. Especially, actually, as HelloFresh doesn't give you hole-punched recipe cards anymore. So the ring uh, binder that they gave me is no longer works with the recipe cards they give me. So mm. that's a little bit... That, that bothers me a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, it's just these, these little things that, you know, you, you remember, you tell people about. Even if you cancel the service, you still kind of say to people, oh, yeah, that's a really good company. I love that. Yeah, I love the direct mail campaigns. We did a bunch at uh, Cordial, one of the other startups I was at previously. I've even been thinking about kind of going back to the idea of the handwritten note. Have you heard of Bonjoro, the yeah. like, video messaging? I've, uh, kind of I've actually interviewed I've... two of them on my on my podcast. Okay. Yeah, Ollie's great. I'm going to yeah. have them on the, on the podcast eventually. Ollie, if you're listening, reach out and uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. But I've been, I've been thinking about using them to send videos to new swipe files like trialing members or maybe even, you know, new members, sort of like welcome them, get them on board and just like give like a personal touch of like a, like an actual personalized, you know, hey, well, like glad to see you in here. My name's Quartz, want to introduce myself in case we haven't met, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, have something that's just like different than the regular, you know, email or, you know, initial kind of DM or something, like you said, that's looks like everything else that people experience. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I interviewed Matt first, the founder. And one thing he, he explained was, you know, these don't have to be unique one-to-one messages. There's the idea that it just needs to be obvious that it's been recorded for this email, for the, for the email on that day. So he said, you literally, you know, you can get away with just, you know, taking a video on your walk to work or something and just saying, look, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful Monday out there. I hope you're having a great day or I've got a great day ahead of you, whatever. Just wanted to check in because you ordered from us a few days ago. Let us know if you've got any problems or anything. You know, you can still make it, you can make it a generic message, but it, which is still obvious that it was done on that day and sent for that person, if that makes sense. Right. Rather than right. having to yeah. say the person's name and, and referencing a few things. Yeah. So I thought I thought that was really good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it looks like an awesome service. I've never actually used it myself, but 
Yeah, that sort of stuff. Just, Let me give them a run. Yeah. Yeah, maybe by the time this comes out, and if you join, you can take part in the experiment and see if you like it or tweak it or, or something like that. But yeah, that's awesome. One, one of the other interesting kind of experiences you've had is uh, Sport Drafter. Could you walk me through what that was and, and how yeah. it went? We were kind of chatting about it before, and uh, I'm curious to hear that story. Yeah, Sport Drafter. I was thinking about that the other day for some reason as well, actually. Yeah, so you must know uh, FanDuel, right? FanDuel DraftKings in the US. Do you know Fantasy Premier League? Less familiar with that one. Cool. So Fantasy Premier League is like a cult thing in the UK. It's a fantasy, it's a fantasy football thing for, for the Premier League, hence Fantasy Premier League. But the thing is, it works on a season-long basis, right? You you pick your team at the start, and then you, you have your team of 11 plus a goalkeeper and three on the bench, I think three other subs. Every week you get to make one change to your team for free, which is a transfer, which can be anyone. So it doesn't have to be from your subs. You make the transfer and then you get a couple of power-ups. Like you can, you can treble your captain points one week. You get a wild card, which allows you to make five changes to your team one week. So it's generally advised you wait until about halfway in the season. But the, the two big issues are if you go away on holiday or Back when I was playing it, if you make the mistake of getting really drunk on a Friday and waking up late on a Saturday and you miss the chance to make your change, you you end up falling behind because you can't you're not optimizing your team on a weekly basis. You start to fall behind on points, and then once you reach that certain point where you don't care anymore, because you're you're enough points off the top to think I'm never going to catch this person, or you go on holiday or something and you just you don't check it when you're on holiday because you forget. So people fall behind, which means generally every league ends up with like two or three people just battling it out and no one else cares. So we, my my flatmate at the time actually moved to New York and then, so he got exposed to fancy, sorry, to FanDuel DraftKings. And we kind of looked at that model and said, we can do that. We can do that in the UK. We think that'd be really popular because sports betting is massive here, like billions and billions of pounds every year. I think we we came across some statistic like the average person has about four or five different betting accounts. Like the the average wow. gambler has four or five yeah. different accounts, something like that. So we we're thinking, right? People love fancy Premier League. They love gambling. Let's combine the two and let's give them that that instant uh, gratification. You know. All you've got to do is wait until what, seven o'clock or something on a Saturday, uh, and then those games get paid out. Or if you do if you do the full weekend one, you have to wait until yeah Sunday evening sometime. And then we did Champions League as well. So we we came across a few problems in that we had to get regulated by the Gambling Commission, which uh. wasn't a massive issue, but it's just something we hadn't really considered when we first started the project. It's something we had to get legal advice on, you know, whether this was something that actually did get covered, and yes, it does. So we got that. That then caused massive amounts of problems getting customers signed up. That's, I don't want to say the, the biggest issue that we faced, but it was a massive, massive blockage for us in that we couldn't use affiliates because affiliates wanted to charge a silly gambling level uh, commissions, which, you know, I was getting quoted 90, 100 pounds CPAs for traffic when we'd calculated our average lifetime value as about 45, 50 pounds, mm. right? 
bearing in mind, so for every every dollar or pound someone spent, we only got about 12, 12%, 13%. So 12, 13 pence per pound. So we're not making huge amounts of money off people. Um, so those CPAs didn't work. So we, we did some stuff with Facebook, which, which worked quite well. We worked with a few influencers, which worked well. The, the best thing we did was probably send up setting up uh, private leagues with refer with a referral system in place so someone could invite all their friends uh, to a private league when they all joined up they all got the bonuses so right? kind of like a double double-sided reward basically. yeah double-sided rewards that that was quite popular that worked really well but at the end of the day the, the issue we faced was funding you know we, it was costing us quite a lot of money to run the company and uh, and we couldn't get the funding in we had a few a few deals fall through. The biggest, it all happened just as the whole legal issues in the US came out, like around mm. FanDuel and DraftKings. Is it gambling? Should it be legal or not? When that all started kicking off, the deals that we were we were working on all fell through because either they were US based and saw that becoming illegal and thought, well, that's going to be issues for you. You're not going to be able to come to the US, which is a massive fancy you know, fancy country audience. And DraftKings FanDuel will probably come to the UK, which is a massive gambling, uh, you know, g- gambling right. uh, country. So there was kind of that double, like, you're not going to be able to go to the US, but the two big guys are going to come over here. So yeah, that, that kind of fell through. But I mean, it was, a, it was a really good experience. Learned a lot. You know, I would definitely do things a lot differently. One thing would be to, to focus a little bit more. You know, I... I think I probably should have said, like, co-founder, you're completely responsible for investment. Unless I absolutely have to do a meeting in the UK, you do you do it all over Zoom, whatever. You, you make that happen. I'm going to do the marketing. I'm going to grow this thing. And the other thing would be, if we had known about the problems marketing the, the product using because of gambling, we probably would have gone down, like, the freemium mobile app route and... Right. Had it ad supported or had it allowed people to buy extra transfers or something or like, you know, a mid a mid game transfer or something. And then that would have allowed us to also launch the app everywhere at once. Hmm. And that not just the UK. That might have worked really well because you can acquire really cheaply in certain countries and those players wouldn't have to spend anything, but they could still drive revenue for us. So I think if I was gonna do it differently, that's probably the route I would have gone down. And just said, screw the gambling thing. It costs us money. It's and it's a pain in the ass. So let's yeah, let's go down this uh, this freemium route. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. What when was that? It was twenty. I'm trying to think when the whole FanDuel twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen. I believe I believe we shut it down in sixteen. So maybe okay. maybe fourteen yeah. to sixteen is when we yeah. were when we were looking at it. Right. The combination of the regulation and the economics are really, really tough. So like you said, it really comes down to distribution, to marketing, and to figure out like the right way to get it in people's hands. Yeah. Also, it'd be a nightmare now because not only the, the welcome offer we were offering would now probably be illegal to use. Well, not exactly illegal, but because I, I actually worked for a gambling company shortly after. These, these bonuses where you, you give someone... They deposit ten pounds, they get forty pounds in credit, but that forty pounds credit has to be spent like forty times in order to 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 turn into real oh, money. See. And that's like 
basically the traditional gambling bonus in the UK. That's now frowned upon a lot by the, the CMA, which is the Consumer Marketing Association, something like that. But also gambling tax has gone up from 15 to 21%. So every pound they spent, we would have got, so we took 15p, so 15% commission, we immediately lose, obviously, the transaction fee of like 1%, 2%, whatever, and then lose 21% of that, of the remainder. Right. Like, you know, b- before that's before tax or anything, it's an immediate point of sale tax. So you just lose that money mm. straight away. So th- that would have made things even more difficult. Yeah. That probably adds up to like half of this original transaction pre-tax, right? Yeah, we're, we're probably looking at, yeah, for every pound, getting about 9 nine pence if we were running it now and yeah, yeah. it's just you, you're talking about having to having to have tens of thousands of users and not giving away free cash because uh, a lot I know a lot of what FanDuel and DraftKings did were I think they had those free games where anyone could play and if you won it you just won cash so we, we tried that model that worked really well for us initially and we wanted to phase it out but if we'd continued with that you know just trying to get the payback on that, you know, even if it was a hundred pounds prize, the payback for that hundred pounds just takes ages. Mm. So, yeah, really, really difficult, but a really, really interesting experience. So, glad I did it. Gutted we didn't <laughs> go down the mobile route, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, lessons learned. I think there's always an interesting experience coming out the other side of. Uh, a really difficult sort of hill to climb, right? If you just like go straight for like the, the really like, you know, this is as hard as it gets, like everything after that maybe seems a little bit easier, a little bit simpler. You come out a little bit smarter, right? Than the rest of the guys because they haven't gone through that same experience. Speaking of which, now you mostly do consulting for e-commerce and D2C sort of brands, mostly on, actually you have, I, I really like these, kind of these three big pillars. You have uh, conversion rate optimization, customer experience optimization and customer value optimization. Could you talk through the differences between those three really quick, just kind of, so we talk apples and apples? It's it's funny that you, you asked me that now. I've kind of switched things up a bit. I guess I don't mm. see them necessarily as different anymore. It's, it's more around the explanation of what I do. Part of what I do is right. conversion rate optimization. The end goal is customer value optimization. And part of that is customer experience optimization. So right, it's, it's right. more that they're linked together and, and some ways of explaining it are easier than others because customer value optimization is, I think, quite a new term that's being used. But it is obviously, I'd say it's the most important thing you need to be considering because if you're not optimizing for value, you're, you don't know if you're acquiring profitable customers. But so part of what I do is conversion rate optimization because you've got to get those customers in the first place. You want to drive that CPA down. And as you drive that CPA down, you can also afford to spend more per per acquisition. So you kind of, I was actually just editing a podcast earlier about with a, with a guy who did PPC and he talked about the profit curve, which is where kind of very on a very basic level, if you spend, you might be spending 70 pounds or $70 to acquire a customer or you might spend $90 to acquire a customer. At both points, you're earning the same amount of profit per per acquisition. But if you're spending $90 per person, you're also getting maybe five times more customers through the door. Right. Which 
which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it because a lot of companies will say we need the cheapest possible CPA and they're focusing on it from an acquisition point of view. But actually you can look at it and say, well, yeah, we could, we could double our CPA and bottom line, you wouldn't notice the difference because while we'd be spending more per customer, we're going to get X times more customers through the door. So I don't deal with the acquisition side, but this that's kind of this this customer value optimization piece. It, it links in. You know, if I drive the conversion rate up, which drives your CPA down, you can then afford to bid more per person because you're now bidding instead of you know if, if it's ten dollars and I've driven it down to five, you can afford to go back up to ten because that's what you were spending before. But now you're getting so many more people through the door. Right. Then that. Right customer experience piece is more around a little bit around kind of it might be the delivery of a product or customer service you know we want to make sure customers are happy with with their purchase and they have a good experience and they want to come back again you know the ideal situation is you can throw your email marketing tool out the door because everyone's had such a good experience they don't want to go anywhere else right that would be the dream it's never going to happen obviously mm-hmm. but Right. And there's obviously other reasons you wouldn't want to do that, like new product launches and things. But yeah, the the idea is you want to make it really easy for people to purchase. And then you want to make it really easy for them to do whatever else it is they need to do to be happy with their purchase and, and their objective. If they need to come back to the website to find more information, make it really easy. If they need to change their marketing preferences, for example, make it really easy. If you're a SaaS business and someone wants to change the credit card they use, just make it really easy for them. You know, I've, I, I can't remember which tool it was. I, I probably shouldn't say the name anyway. But yeah, it was a SaaS tool where I literally just needed to change it from one card to another. That's all I wanted to do. But it wouldn't allow me to just uh, edit the payment details. or And I couldn't remove my current card because I had to have a, pay, a payment card. So I just had to, it made me add a new card, make that the primary card, and then remove the other card, which was just, I mean, now that I say it, it doesn't sound too bad, but it was just that extra, you know, it just, it could have been easier. All I, all I wanted to do was edit it. And if I am just trying to remove my card to cancel my account, just let me do that. Like, mm. Right. You know, if someone removes their card and they have no card attached, then trigger a cancellation as well or something. I don't know. You know, there's no need to kind of trick or force people to to do something that the company wants them to do instead of what they want to do. And then this kind of all builds into the customer value optimization piece, which is if you convert people really well, they convert at a lower rate. Quite often they will they will buy a bit more as well. Or it's easier to get them to buy more. And then if you give them a great experience, they'll stick around for longer. And they'll be more receptive to email marketing and to a referral program, a loyalty scheme. They're going to leave reviews for you. Some of these actions don't directly drive revenue. So leaving a review doesn't drive you revenue. What was the other one I mentioned? Joining a loyalty scheme doesn't necessarily drive revenue, but it will. It has an impact later. You know, that review might draw someone else in. Them being in the referral program, obviously, they, they, will, they, will, they will bring other customers in for you. But they won't do that if they're not happy. Or worse, they were going to leave a bad review. Right, right. So that's kind yeah, of that's a big one. So that's that's kind of my yeah my my whole thing. I think you know I, there's a bit of conversion rate optimization, a bit of customer experience. I, I do some email marketing as well. You know, 
I think it's really important to follow up with customer with customers in pretty soon after they purchase or after they receive a product. Obviously, it depends what mm. what products or service you're offering, and check in with them. What most companies do is they wait for let's say seven days and then they just send you a request to to leave a review, which is which is fine if you're happy to just get positive and negative reviews and hopefully you're dealing with that and actually looking at that but the better way is to say email the email the customer after seven days check in with them you know how they're doing did the product arrive on time was it in one piece have they tried it out is everything okay do they have any questions just respond you'll get through to customer service customer service can then look at all those responses really quickly and just tag anything negative and make a customer service ticket out of it and then go fix that problem and then when that review request comes through maybe a week later that person's problem's been fixed possibly without them even have you know they haven't had to get in touch with customer service but they left a bit of a negative response customer service has fixed that sorted it contacted them when they received the notification they go yeah sure five star that was great yeah, no. The, I'm curious on the, on the leaving review, checking in with people. Like, what does it actually look like? Are you sending an email with just like a hey, respond to this email, or is it like, you know, how was your experience? You know, one star to five star, and then it's like a prompt to like leave feedback, or how do you actually gauge, you know, how the experience was before you ask for a review? Yeah. So, I guess one of the important things that I should say straight away is it is it's against the terms and conditions of most review platforms to gateway reviews which is basically where you say, you email someone saying, email someone, ugh. email someone saying, are you happy with your purchase, yes or no? If they click no, you send them to a feedback form or something and you don't trigger a review request. And if they say yes, you say, great, head over to Trustpilot or reviews.io, leave a review. You're not supposed to do that because it's kind of gaming the system. What you can do though is try and head off that that negative review by finding out if people do have problems and trying to fix them before that review request comes through. But I think as long as you're treating everyone the same there, you're fine. And so what I what I tend to do is depending on the products, obviously, let's say it's I don't know, a pair of shoes or some clothing or something. We know it's going to take 2-3 days to get to you or we might have a we might have a trigger to know that a delivery's delivery's happened. So you trigger this email Maybe let's just say seven days after they received the product, and it is just a did you receive the product okay? Like how you know was, did you have any issues with delivery? Is there are there any issues with the product? How do you like it? Does it does it fit? You know you can phrase these questions as appropriate for whatever the, the product is, and obviously some people will just ignore it. They're more likely to ignore it if they're happy. Or you might just get emails back saying, yeah, everything cool. Because normally we end it with, if you have any problems, please get in touch. So we, the, the call to action is, if you are unhappy, get in touch. Well, there is no call to action if you are happy. Because we would assume you just get on with it. So right. people start responding to those emails and we'll, it, they will come straight into the, the customer service ticketing, ticketing tool. Because you send them to support app company name you get customer service to look over them check for any issues and and start dealing with those issues you almost like prioritize them because these are people who we are going to ask for a review in a few days so fix these problems and 
I mean, there could be whatever problems, but have someone reach out to that person, have them try and fix the problem. Because when that review request comes through a bit later, best case is you fix the problem and that person goes, awesome, five star. What's in fact, in my opinion, even better, in the review they say, five star, had a little issue with the product, this happened, but customer service got in touch with me and fixed it straight away, right? Yeah. That's almost like even better for you because it's not just a five-star review. It's one that says, if there is a problem, they will fix it for you straight away. And, and that's, that's basically it because you don't have to do anything else because the review request will go anyway. So you just set that to, you set that to 14 days, for example. So you've got, you've got one week to fix those issues as they come in. And hopefully, hopefully there aren't any in the first place or not many, but it just helps you, it helps you turn negative reviews into positive reviews, but it could also turn like nothing reviews into, into actual reviews. You know, you might get people who just go, yeah, it was like, it was fine. It's not made any like difference to my life, but it was all fine. But because you fixed that issue for them, sorry, hang on. It might be the case that actually they've maybe they've misunderstood the product or something, or they don't understand how to use it properly. But customer service fix it, fixes it, and instead of them going, yeah, that was just all right, they go, uh, yeah, I didn't really understand how to use this, but when I spoke to customer service, they explained it all, and now this is changing my life. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a great example because, like you said, if, if the experience, like expectations by default are sort of like, you know, good, adequate like you know got the product works as as please like people aren't going to be that compelled to really give like an outstanding review right you really have to go above and beyond from the outset or if there is an issue you have to go above and beyond to create that kind of you know turn a a mediocre or even a bad experience into a great experience and that's really where the reviews come from is sort of like the great exceptional experiences yeah i mean i'm i'm terrible for companies really like if i I buy a pair of shoes or something there's (laughs) there's no way i'm going to feel inclined to just leave a five-star review for that company because i'm the sort of person who looks at these shoes and goes yeah they're shoes they they do the job great which really should be a five-star review they do they do the job i've got no complaints i I might be yeah i i'm really difficult at getting reviews from to be fair but if there was a positive yeah. customer service interaction, I would just go and give five star. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the thing. For, that from an optics me. perspective, too, I think it's really interesting because if you were shopping on a site for shoes, right, and maybe you had some hesitations around the fit, you know, maybe it's like you have a really wide foot, like I do, for example, or random fact, and you're scared if maybe like the shoe is going to be too skinny or too tight, or maybe it's just you know you're not sure about the size because you know there's sizing issues compared to different countries or whatnot, and and then be decided to buy anyways, and let's just say that your sort of like worst fear became true, right, and like it was too skinny or it was too small or something, right, and so then I'm like ah oh, I I knew it, you know now I'm like inclined like kind of enraged, I'm inclined to give a one star review and to you know, give them a piece of my mind, but there's an email that comes through that says, Hey, you know, how's your experience? And so, well, yada, yada, yada. It was, I thought it was going to be uh, wide enough or large enough and it's not. And they say, Oh, no problem. Here's what we recommend in this, in the scenario, you know, let us send you a new one in exchange, you know, in a couple of days, I get a new pair works great. Now that's a, a great review for me. I leave the review and I say, Oh, you know, I thought they were going to be too small. They were, they sent me a new pair. So, you know, 
for anyone out there, you know, size up a half a size or, or a full size, for example. And then when I'm reading that, I'm like, oh, that's really good. Because now I know that they're telling the truth, right? That no company is perfect, no product is perfect. But if I can identify what that little quirk or, or kind of like weakness is, but then work around that, then then I can really, you know, trust the brand. I can really trust the messaging around how they're selling the product. Yeah. Actually, related to that, because this came up in a, in an episode of my podcast, check out the reviews for your competitors. And and even if you can get hold of a decent tool, check out customer sentiment for your competitors. Hmm. And then, all right, don't focus your messaging around it, but basically find out where they're struggling and make sure that's an obvious key point on your website. So if everyone keeps complaining that their deliveries are late, with this company, you know, highlight the fact that delivery is guaranteed in 48 hours or something, you know, some sort of message like that to say, you know, we, we know this is an issue for people. It's not an issue for our customers because we don't get complaints, but we know it's an issue for other people. And uh, in fact, yeah, that actually reminds me of some feedback that my client got. We were just, we were running just kind of general market research um, surveys really. And one of the, uh, I can't remember the, the logic that got this person to this question, but they basically said, it was, oh, how confident were you of this purchase? And the person had rated their, their confidence quite low. And the reason was they'd been burned by a previous company. They'd bought, bought a similar product a few years ago and it hadn't gone well. And so their confidence level for making a purchase with my client was also low because they were skeptical about the whole idea. Right. So even though your customers are, are, are happy with the delivery, someone who's had a bad experience elsewhere might be looking at your site thinking, I can't see anywhere where it says you're, you've got fast, speedy, efficient delivery. And so that might put them off. So there's that messaging yeah. there that you can just pull across by just looking at what your competitor is doing badly and make sure you're, uh, people are aware you do it well. It's very true. My, my wife makes handmade sort of jewelry, like earrings, and she's sort of expanding into other sort of niches now as well, but mainly earrings has been kind of her niche. And so she buys all the components, you know, sort of at wholesale or like directly from other, you know, sort of boutique makers. And then she'll, they're polymer clay earrings mainly, and so she'll then, you know, make the, the clay earrings from scratch and everything. But there's all these little parts that go into, there's like these tiny little, you know, rings, and then there's the, the actual, man, I don't know, my earring nomenclature because I'm a guy, but you know, the thing that goes in your ear, I sound like an idiot for saying that, but you know, there's all these tiny little pieces that come in there and she's actually found it really difficult to like keep up with all the, uh, the parts and sort of like the goods that she needs to create them because each, she has a different vendor for each one of these tiny pieces. And like you said, each one of them has vastly different experiences around shipping, mm -hmm. around cost, around fit, you know, all the time. <laughs> She'll yeah. order like these new casts for, for new earring styles. And, and they won't specify like the size or the, or the dimensions of the cast. And so she'll have to kind of, you know, take a risk. And she's sort of trusting that, well, if they're the wrong size, then I can send it back. She buys a lot of things through Etsy and they usually have a good kind of guarantee on there. But it's about 25 to 50% of the time, they're like vastly different sizes than she thought. They're either like, you know, a 10th the size of what she thought, or they're like 10 times as big as what she <laughs> yeah. thought. And, and so, you know, like I said, there, there can be a lot of that where if you're in like a really competitive space where there's a lot of different sort of competitors or alternatives, 
you know, people can start to conflate their experience with others with you. And you have to be really careful to, like I said, differentiate and highlight all the things that make you different and or sort of squash those objections before they come up. Yeah. What's, it's weird. I, I've noticed recently, I mean, I don't know if it's a recent thing or it's just the, the websites I've come across. I've seen several sites which, like fashion sites, which don't offer free delivery at all. So not even with a minimum spend. And their return policy basically states you have a legal a legal right to return this product within 14 days. And it just comes across as we don't care, like we don't we don't want to refund this, but we we will if you return it in the in the legal time period. And it's like how how do you think that's going to make you stand out against someone who offers free shipping over fifty dollars? and free returns within 30 days if you don't like it. Hmm. You know, all right, maybe that company has the money to be able to, to do that and the scale, and maybe the other one's a bit smaller, but you shouldn't, you can't build the business based on that. You know, you, all right, you are gonna get returns, but you should be thinking everything's gonna go right. 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 And if it's not gonna go right, how do we make sure it goes right so that it, doesn't go wrong and we don't have those costs it's a bit like you know i know some people don't have review programs or don't request reviews because they don't want the negative review and a a few other similar things and it's like well firstly you get loads of feedback from the negative reviews and secondly because you're worried about negative reviews doesn't mean they're not happening and those bad experiences aren't happening it just means you don't know about them like just go and like fix the problem so that you don't have the negative reviews and it's just like fix the problem so you don't actually get the returns in the first place yeah yeah it's huge one, one of the kind of like themes that's popping into my head as as you talk through it is that especially in e-commerce and a lot of the ddc brands it's really really competitive like everyone and their mom has an e-commerce you know shop or store there's a, a lot of kind of commoditization happening where people are are it's a really competitive space just across like every niche i'll give you another example really quick of and this will kind of lead into a question but right before recording with you my wife was ordering some some new we have a pug and he needs his face wiped and cleaned because he's a flat nosed little guy with lots of crevices and stuff and so we ran out of these little wipes that we used to clean his face and, and so we looked, looked on amazon but they're pretty expensive and then my, my wife did a google search and she found some on chewy and so she added them to the cart and they were cheaper. And, uh, and then when she, she went to the checkout and then found that there was a $10 shipping fee and she was like, Oh, what do I do? Do I just like buy the more expensive ones on Amazon to get them quicker? Or do I spend more money with shipping, but then get them longer, you know, but it ends up still being kind of cheaper. And, uh, and then she saw that there was like a, if you spend $80, then you get free shipping. So she's like, Oh, do we need anything else for him? I was like, Oh, well, we need, you know, multivitamins and we need this other thing for him. I forget what it was, but it ended up being just over $80 and I forget how she did, but I think she found a coupon as well, but then she ended up buying through Chewy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it almost didn't happen <laughs> there for a second, you know, maybe because, you know, that threshold was a little bit too low or because it was unexpected. Like you said, that there wouldn't be free shipping or, or cheap shipping. She was also comparison shopping across Amazon, which basically everyone these days competes against or sort of with Amazon. But I guess my, my question to you from that example is how do you like what's what's too far? Like 
you have to draw a line somewhere of, you know, with the unique economics of what you offer, what you provide, how much service you go, like the lengths that you go for the customer. How do you find what that line is? Or do you just have to do anything and everything you can to get an edge on your competitors? No, I don't think you do. The Obviously, it depends on what you're selling to a certain degree. One of my clients is, I actually, I really should know the name for this, basically like a reseller. So they, a distributor, maybe. They they, okay. they sell shoes. They do have their own shoe brand, but most of the shoes sold are other brands, right? So they can't really differentiate on the product because they get the same images, the same product description as any other website that sells them. So they need to focus on what makes their website special. What, why should people buy from them? And it doesn't have to be things like free delivery, free returns, that that definitely helps. That, those are really important to customers these days. So you are, you're gonna struggle a little bit if you don't offer those. But you need to make sure people think, you know, they look at the reviews or they even look just looking at the website and say, this is an easy website to use. They've got the information I need. Yeah, this, this is just, it's, it's too easy to say, too easy to say no to, no. Easy to say no to, or hard to say no to. Hard to say no to. Is that what I mean? Yeah, it's it's the website is so good. Why would I want to go anywhere else? Um, Why would I not want to buy from here? And you know, you can differentiate a little bit. You know, a lot of review platforms are now doing things like, yeah, is it is it true to fit? You know, are are the shoes a bit wide or or whatever? If you can get that information on your site and your competitor doesn't, you've got an edge. Now this is, it's much easier when the product is your own product because you can craft the whole story around it and you, you've got complete freedom to explain to the visitor why that product is the best thing that's going to happen to their life and, and why they should buy it. And so in the case of like the wipes, for example, if they are their own brand wipes, you can still get that advantage over Amazon, for example, but just making sure the description on the, the Chewy website is better and that people are more complete, maybe. I mean, all right, you, you wouldn't not do it on Amazon if, if you're there as well, but that's a whole other story. But if you're competing against a, you know someone else's product, you just need to convince the customer that your product is the best thing for that customer. One thing you've got to actually avoid, though, is, is messaging which accidentally puts people off. So I got mm-hmm. I got told this this little story by someone. He he was looking for printer paper in a store and found a a pack. It's not a pack of paper. Punnet? Is it a punnet of paper? Anyway, a, a pack of paper. A ream. Ream. That's the one. I only know that because of the office. I think yeah, that's <laughs> I should that's what I was trying to think of. I think I think punnet is like a fruit thing actually. Anyway, uh, a ream of paper. And on it, it said something like 99% jam free or doesn't jam 99% of the time. It was that that message of 99% of the time jam free, which I can kind of see why that company thought this is a great idea. We want to convince people that our paper doesn't jam, but obviously it, it probably does jam. Some of the times you, you can't just say 100% because that would just be false. However, when you've got like 5,000 pieces of paper in that ring, that 1% of jams actually, that suddenly adds up. And if you, if you think about it, if you're the sort of person who's gonna make that calculation, 
suddenly you're thinking, actually, this is going to jam quite a few times. That's that's more than I really want. So, so I, I I don't want it. So sometimes it is better not to say something rather than say something. But equally, if your product, let's say the wipes, said doesn't include this ingredient, which sounds like a nasty ingredient that's not healthy for dogs. If your competitor's not making that claim, you do suddenly look better. So you don't have to do things like free delivery on all orders, free returns whenever. You know, ASOS here, I think, are getting into a lot of trouble with that just because the return rates are so high. It just costs them so much money and in restocking and things. But yes, you you don't have to to focus on that stuff because at the end of the day, the, the product needs to be the thing that's selling to, to the customer. If, if they're buying because the other things are so good, it means you've, you've almost created this idea of it's uh, just why not? I'm, I might as well give it a go because if I don't like it, I'll just send right. it back, whatever. Or, and it's the same with discounting. When you, if you discount to a certain level, the person just goes, well, it'd be stupid not to. Like, uh, you know, it's stupid not to at least try it and I can return it. But you don't build that loyalty with people. They don't have that engagement. And quite possibly when they receive the product, obviously with the dog wipes, you're just going to use them. But it might be another product where the person just doesn't use it as much as they would have if they were committed to the purchase. And I'm, I think I was saying to you earlier, I, I impulse purchase a lot. I'm trying to look around a bit. I've probably got loads of stuff in my flat now that I just saw it and went, ah, that's just so cheap. Like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, I don't care. But it also probably meant that I never really gave it a shot. Mm. And so they've got the money, fine. You know, they got that sale. But I don't think if I ever need this this kind of category of product, I have to go back to that brand because it's so good. And it also means I'm never, you know, the brand is not in my mind, so I'm not going to recommend them. So... Yeah, you know, you really want to convince people that that product is going to, you know, change their world for whatever reason. And you know, obviously, it's, it can be difficult with some fashion products. Like if you if you just sell t-shirts, it's difficult to explain why your t-shirt why your t-shirt is so much better than anyone else's. But you can look at you know maybe look at other opportunities. You know, if your products are really really responsibly sourced, and you can prove that and show that off. It's a plus point for that customer. There's a brand, I can't remember the name of the brand. It's a dog food or maybe just pet food brand. But they have a loyalty program. And when you redeem points, you can either get a discount for yourself or you can give, uh, you can donate food to a, a dog shelter. And it's just that sort of thing, which it probably doesn't cost them that much to do that because they probably have some sort of supply agreement in place just to do that or, or just use their own food and they're just paying they're just losing the cost but it creates that feeling for the customer that just gives that attachment to the brand a bit better and makes them feel more positive towards the brand and and makes them less likely to just to shift to someone else right so yeah there's that. you know ideally the product will sell it and and be so convincing that the customer has to buy it from you but otherwise yeah there are a few other things you could do but I, I just try and stay away from the stuff which is just damaging to value mm. yeah it reminds me of uh patagonia and i was reading recently about their i forget what it's called but it's ba they basically have like a way where you can track where your sort of 
item, apparel, whatever like it is that you bought, like all the different sort of places that it went through, where the ingredients came from, and like the whole journey to it getting onto your body. And so you can like go and look back and just like, I think you can just like type in like an item number or like an order number or something, and then it'll show you like, oh, here's where it was made, and here's where it was assembled, here's where it like shipped to, here's where we, you know, where you bought it, and now, you know, you have it. But stuff like that, right, where it's anyone can copy and sort of recreate a Patagonia shirt, but it's the Patagonia brand yeah. and the values behind it, them showing here's where it was responsibly sourced. I, I that think makes I difference. saw Patagonia as an example today, actually. I think it's Patagonia. And it was something to do with when you're adding products to cart, they would tell you how many trees or something they're donating. It was some sort of donation-based thing, but it's it's not a loyalty program. It's nothing to do with that. It's literally, you could be a first-time customer adding products to basket, and they will they make these kind of really strong value statements that make you think, okay, I'm, I'm contributing to the world by buying this product. Yeah, I love and it. It's, it's that super. sort of thing that probably does it's a minimum cost to that to them because they've got a system in place to just run that program but it it just makes you feel a little bit better about spending more money with them than a cheaper equivalent brand right yeah that's so powerful speaking of which speaking of a a recent purchase is there a, a recent purchase or something that you can kind of that you bought recently or that you or that you went through like a service through recently that you could walk me through and kind of do like a Jobs be done, kind of customer journey, reverse reverse engineering. God, off the top of my head. Might not be quite what you're thinking, but I'm I'm in the process of buying a house. And as part of that process, you've got to get, I've got to get various kind of surveys and things done to check the quality of the house, make sure it's all, you know, make sure it's not going to fall down after I buy it, basically. And actually, this was for the, the actual survey. I got, I went to one of those sites where you get a bunch of quotes, you know, filled in the details, got a few quotes through one company emailed followed up with an email and then I never heard from them again even if I even though I responded I think one company I tried calling and just couldn't get through there was another company though where I I got on the phone with him we we talked through the process and everything sounded really good you know he said they they can they book it in they'll book it in with the estate agent to make sure they can get access as required they they do the report takes a couple of hours and then they phone me to go through the report before not before, but like when they send it over. So I don't just get a written report, I get someone talking me through it. So I thought this is all great. I just asked them about one thing because I noticed when doing various quotes, some people quoted with this, some people quoted without, and it was the the cost of rebuilding, the valuation for rebuilding if if the property burnt to the ground or whatever. And it's for insurance purposes. You know, you, you tell the you give that valuation to the insurance company so that they can give you the, the right premium so you can rebuild and I asked this guy if it was included he said no so I asked him how much it was and he just kind of went oh um 100 quid uh, probably said 100 pounds but it was it was like oh uh, 100 pounds and it was just that the way he said it over the phone it just kind of gave me the impression he'd made it up on the spot like it was a, a really weird experience like firstly he should be selling it to me and saying yes, you absolutely want this valuation. It's it's only an extra hundred quid. You know, it doesn't. You know, it just comes across in the report. Blah blah blah. All right. You know, we spend a few more. We spend another hour or something just doing this. Whatever. He should be selling it to me. Instead, it just came across as he he just made this figure up in his head. And so, not only did the price feel weird, but it also 
it kind of like devalued that service to me and, and made me wonder whether I was going to get a good job done there hmm. when he was just so so casual about it when really it should be considered a really important part of this of this survey because if my, the house that I'm spending a load of money on <laughs> burns down I want to know how much the insurance company is is gonna is gonna contribute to the rebuild. So yeah, that was that was a really weird experience. Another one, oh, yeah. I, I guess, actually, another one which comes back to to what I was saying earlier about I might as well just give this a go. I got advertised these these green green vitamin drink pills things. Do, do you have Barocca over in the US? US? They're like that sounds kind of familiar actually. They're like little orange tablets that you put in water. They fizz. And it's like, I think Barocca is a vitamin C drink, right? This was the same thing, but for, for vegetables, like for, you know, it's a green, a green product. It's, it was absolutely horrible. I hated it. But anyway, but the advert was for your first, first two weeks, I think, or maybe month free, just pay the, pay the shipping. So I saw that and I was like, okay, fine, whatever. I, I have a feeling shipping was like a pound 50. So nothing. So it was it really to that point where I was like, absolutely no reason for me to say no to this right i would have done it if they'd offered me one tablet right a pound 50 to just try this product once but no they gave me two weeks worth which i'm getting used because it's horrible but and then another weird thing about the experience was when i logged into my account and was trying to edit it i noticed that when you were trying to change the frequency that you get them instead of allowing you to say like a normal subscription does I don't want this every two weeks. I want it every four weeks. What they did was, if you ordered it every four weeks, they would give you four weeks supply every four weeks, oh, not right. the two weeks supply. So you weren't just you weren't spacing out the product over the year. You were just having fewer deliveries to get the same amount, which I I thought was quite weird. And then they, they did the whole cancellation thing around you know don't don't cancel. Have your next package half price or something like that which wasn't great do you know what actually thinking about it they have not asked for feedback on why i actually cancelled mm. which you would have thought would be quite key and it was purely the taste i couldn't drink it but yeah that was just one of those i didn't have i was not looking for that product and I, I don't really see any reason why i would uh, but they put an offer in front of me that was so difficult to turn down I ordered it and I've probably cost them money because I'd be surprised if I paid the actual shipping fee for it. Maybe it was more, let's say it was three ninety nine. Maybe I paid the shipping, but they've lost money on the product and the, and the actual acquisition cost and they haven't even got feedback from it. Yeah, so, that's rough. So if there's a yeah, few things I could offer, do. Like you said, the offer was super strong. I've, I've taken advantage of those same types of offers, especially for the kind of subscription D2C products and like I said, it's hard hard to say no. Well, actually, one of my favorite questions uh, to lead into that is I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file, as it were. And just if you, if you have a couple of marketing examples, campaigns, offers that you thought were worth saving, could you walk me through a, a few through, uh, through a few of those that are top of mind for you? Yeah, I guess most of these adverts kind of stick with me. Yeah. Actually, two more just popped into my head. Right, so the first one is the Oreo, ad, Oreo uh, social media post from the Super Bowl back five to ten years ago when the lights went out in the stadium and mm. with i think within that blackout period they came out with a with a post which was you can always dunk in the dark 
and it was like I think it was a spotlight. The image was a spotlight onto a glass of milk with an Oreo next to it, and it was it was fantastic. And everyone, you know, it became like almost like a case study of why spend millions on a on a on a Super Bowl placement ad. What if you've got a team that is responsive enough and has the freedom to just do something like that? So I thought that that was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. One I like really recently. I'd never really been interested in Peloton before. The the price kind of put me off. The additional subscription put me off. I don't really like exercising at home too much. I I can't get in the right mindset for it. So various reasons why, why I didn't like it. I saw the TV advert for the the treadmill that they're doing. And I saw that advert, and at the end of that advert, I was pretty much sold on it. You know, I haven't ordered one yet because I'm moving, but it's now potentially on my mind for moving. And it was it was actually the whole the, the subscription piece, which is probably the bit that sold it to me. The fact that it feels like well, I think there are they are they live? Are they are there sessions uh, yeah. actually uh-huh. live? Yeah. So the fact that you're in a live session, so I have someone shouting at me, screaming at me to get on with it. Because I know that when I'm in the gym, if I'm in the gym with a PT, I'm probably training at two to three times the intensity as when I do it on my own. And it's literally just because someone shouts at me, basically. So I, I think for me, knowing that there's someone who's going to be pushing me through through that training is actually going to get me to do those sessions. So that that really, really worked for me. It was, it, that's the pain point that that product potentially overcomes for me that other treadmills aren't going to because I'm looking at it and going I have to convince myself every day to jump on this whereas I'm sure I'm going to have to like I don't know about booking him but I'm I'm sure I'll get a notification from Peloton or something saying your next session is is due like you've set a reminder for 9am every day like your session is due this trainer is waiting for you like something like that you know, if, if I was there at them, I'd even have like follow-up notifications and things from those instructors saying, we missed you today. You know, where are you? Why aren't you training? Like, I think it'd be really interesting to let people set the tone of voice for that as well. You know, I would happily have them throw abuse at me in an email saying like, what is <laughs> what is wrong with you? Up. Have you given up already? <laughs> kind of get get me, get, you know, get me back on the treadmill. So yeah, those those adverts work really well. And there's there's a couple, there were two adverts in the UK that came out pretty much immediately after some new regulation came in about advertising. One, and they were both around stereotyping, gender stereotyping. And one advert was Philadelphia, which was really good advert, I loved it. It's two dads who've walked into like a cafe or a brunch place. One of them's holding a baby in his arms. And then you see this conveyor belt of like bagels or something with Philadelphia on, just going around this thing. And then there's one little scene where one of the dads are like eating the food and saying how good it is or they're just having a chat or whatever. And then I think they walk out. And then this, the, the advert ends with this baby on the conveyor belt, just in, in the place of where the food was. And, and obviously the idea is that Philadelphia is so irresistible, you'll just, like, you'll just drop whatever you're doing and, and, and grab it. Which I thought was fantastic. I think loads of people did. But obviously it got loads of complaints because people said, oh, it portrays men as bad parents mm. and stuff like that. And you're like, it's it's just a bit of a joke. Come on, come on, people. I think the other one was Volkswagen. This was probably a bit more, yeah, all right. The one thing I noticed was you've got a woman with a pram on a, on a bench 
and this car goes by her and I think there's a man driving the car and uh, people making the point that you know why is the man having fun driving the car and the woman's looking after the kid there was a, another bit which I thought was a bit harsh because the complaint was you know those tents that you get that are attached to the sides of cliffs for, for rock climbers yeah that it, it panned to that for some reason basically I, the complaint was that the man was closer to the camera he was at the outside of the tent and the woman was at was at the like the cliff face that was pretty much the complaint that the man got the priority position for the camera or something but it's I, I thought yeah the Philadelphia one was really good Volkswagen one I wasn't fussed about the advert but it just I remember it because it, it, it happened at the same time as the Philadelphia one and they both got complaints yeah yeah those are fun nonetheless. I love, I love all, those, all those examples. Uh, like I said, too, I think the, the Oreo, you can always dunk in the dark, has become a sort of case study for like social media responsiveness. And it's probably driven a lot of the, you know, like Wendy's and sort of a lot of the big like social media accounts we see now that are very like, you know, snarky and quick and they're very agile teams that can respond and sort of hijack the audience and attention to something huge like a Super Bowl. Peloton, too, that's a really interesting you know, the bike didn't intrigue you, but the treadmill did. And, well, uh, and the fact that it was the subscription and the class and it, it, sort of the, the idea of someone keeping you accountable. It might not be that the bike didn't and the treadmill did. It was more the, I think it's more the fact that I've seen the full TV advert with the, where they focus on the training, but it happened to be for the uh, treadmill. So I, I probably would use the bike. That's probably what I would go for. Uh, now I know, now I've kind of seen what that training actually looks like. Now I'm like, oh, actually this is something I would kind of like. Whereas before, honestly, I kind of thought it was just an expensive exercise bike. Mm, right. Highlighting the wrong part of the wrong feature or the wrong benefit or yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what comes to mind? Like what, what does that mean to you? I, the first thing I'd say is like literally every person, every department in a company is pretty much responsible for marketing. Yeah. Whatever, whatever you do, you should always be thinking about the end user. You know, whether you're a developer building out the product, you know, you, you see a lot of things which are clearly built by developers and no one else has touched it. And it will just do like, it will do what it's supposed to do. The the description of it, of the call to action or whatever, is just very functional. This is what it does. And enter your email or whatever. But everyone should be thinking about, you know, what does this actually say to the customer? How are they going to respond to that? And if it's not your job and you're not the sort of person to do that, you should be getting someone whose job it is to actually look at that. And definitely, definitely the most important part of it is customer service. You know, they are an incredible marketing and sales team for you. They're literally like they're an, like an inbound sales team. So many people getting in touch with them. You've got a great opportunity not only to make their lives better by fixing their problems or, or answering their questions, but also passing that feedback onto those teams who need it like the marketing teams, whether it's acquisition or retention, and the product team. Like they should be taking into account all this customer feedback yeah. to think, are we building the right things? What do we need to build differently? What do we need to do differently? What, what are our customers actually? So yeah, that's what I think by, you know, everything is marketing. I, I've said it a few times. I think once you've launched your business and you've reached a certain stage, marketing should be running the business, pretty much. I, I think people will probably disagree with me. But yeah, I think marketing are the ones who, who have to sell the product. They, they get the budget to advertise the product and sell it. They're the ones who speak to the customers the most, except customer service. But 
uh, get the feedback from customers and things. And they're the ones who can turn that feedback into actionable uh, insights for the rest of the business. So yeah, I think I think marketing should should get a bigger kind of role in the company and should be you know the one of the top people really. I love it. Well, Will, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Will for coming on the show. And make sure to check out Customers Who Click, Will's podcast, also another great marketing podcast. If you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter. Give him a shout out, thank him, let him know if you learned something. And to wrap up, here are two of my top takeaways. First of all, it struck me how distribution was such a key factor to Will's previous startup, Sport Drafter. Because of the limitations with regulations and acquisition costs and the business model they had chosen, it just wasn't going to work. And this is why thinking about marketing and distribution from the very beginning is so important. And secondly, I love how he tied customer activation, experience, and value all together. All three are really interconnected and key to designing a customer experience that's going to be profitable in the long run. It's incredibly competitive in direct-to-consumer businesses and experience is one of the major battlefronts. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.